0: Let's now turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 3, and our passage is verses 16 to 19 about who provokes the Lord. Who is it that provokes the Lord? However, to get the context, we'll begin reading at verse 12. Hebrews 3, verse 12. We'll read 12 to 19. Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we know that this is your word, and we pray that as we approach it, that you will give us hearts and minds that are eager to hear, that are willing to not only hear it, but to obey it. May we be those who are not just merely hearers of the word, but doers of it. May we be those that are moved and motivated and inspired by your Holy Spirit to act in faith and in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. The apostle in this letter to the Hebrews he is exhorting them in many ways. These people, these Christians, these Hebrew Christians or Jewish Christians are those who are experiencing afflictions and persecutions. They have doubts and dilemmas about their life and about the faith that they have in Christ. There are people who were, were infiltrating them and trying to undermine the things that they were taught initially with the true faith. They were being undermined and some doubts were coming And not only were they being undermined verbally, but they were being undermined in terms of practical uh, necessities. Their property was seized. Their property was stolen from them because of their persecutors. So these people are not living a life that is an easy and free life. They're not having a cakewalk in their Christian life. They are experiencing afflictions. It is amazing, it is very amazing to understand that our Apostle, by the Holy Spirit, writes this letter, giving them many, many exhortations. He encourages them at points, but he also admonishes them. He warns them at points. He warns them. He does not treat them as though he is a Santa Claus or a grandfather and gives them toys and candy. He does not preach to them in that way. He does not promise them anything in that way. He hits hard the issues that they are facing with the truth of God. That's the truth of God that we are studying. In one such passage, one such warning passage is this section from Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, and into chapter 4, verse 13. This is one of the longest warning passages of this letter, warning the people that even though you have doubts and dilemmas, you have persecutions, you have uncertainties, You have confusion about the faith. You better not give up Christ. You better not give up and you better not renege on any of the things that you have confessed about the truth of the word of God. The gospel of Christ is the only means of salvation and it is the one that you need to hold fast onto. Otherwise, you will be lost. You will perish. And in this case, in Hebrews 3, 7 and following, our passage even, he is talking about the wilderness generation as one example of a mass of people, a great multitude of people who heard the word of God, who saw the miracles of God, and they had the man of God, Moses, and other men of God, such as Aaron, Caleb, Joshua, and even a prophetess, Miriam, they had all of these examples leading them, but they would not believe. And so what is the consequence of unbelief? What's the consequence of unbelief and its uh, concomitant disobedience? What is the consequence? Verses 16 and following explain. It says, For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned? whose bodies fell in the wilderness. <clears throat> in verses 16 and 17, God is the one who is provoked and God is the one who is angry and it is, he's angry with the wilderness generation. It's his anger and provocation against those people that came out of Egypt saw all the miracles of Egypt, the ten plagues against Pharaoh and his nation and even the other miracles that they experienced in the wilderness, from the Red Sea and all for 40 years in the wilderness. God was against them. He was angry with them. He was provoked with them. He was furious with them, wrathful against them, because although he had given them ample opportunities, plenty of examples, he displayed his glory again and again by various miracles, by many, many miracles, he gave that all. He also gave the word of God in abundance. He announced his promises. I am going to fulfill my promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants. I have sent Moses, Moses, a holy man of God, and his brother Aaron. Both are going to lead you through this wilderness. And they, they you know that they have lived godly in your presence. You know that you can trust them. You know that my word is in them. My word is, is delivered to them and they have announced all these promises that God will indeed give the land of Canaan to you. They, that God will settle you there permanently and that eventually the Messiah will come from your descendants who will be the Savior of the world. All of these promises were told to the people and yet they would not believe. It says here, Who provoked him when they had heard? See, it wasn't as though they were ignorant. They heard. They were the ones who were deluded, as James says. Do not delude yourselves as merely hearers of the word, but not doers of the word. They had the word of God day in and day out. They had the man of God, Moses, the prophet of God, explain the word, even if anything was difficult to understand. Even if there was a dispute between brother and brother or countrymen and countrymen, Moses was there, ultimately, as well as many other judges, to help them sort it out. To figure out what exactly did God mean? What exactly does God expect of us? What exactly is this life about and how should we prepare for the life to come? All of this, they heard it. It was not as though they did not know. This is an important truth because we have... A false notion. We have a false notion that if people will just hear the word, then they'll obey. If they just hear it, everybody who hears it, they'll listen, they'll be eager, and they'll follow. They'll follow suit. They'll do whatever it says. The moment God announces something, they'll be very happy and eager to do it. Well, that's not the truth. It's not the truth that just because they hear, they will obey. The wilderness generation consisted of millions upon millions of people. We know at least that there were 600,000 men of war who were 20 years old and upward. 600,000 men of war 20 years old and upward. Which means if we add other men and we add children and we add all the women, the adult women, that there would have been millions upon millions of people that Moses delivered from Egypt And saw them through the wilderness. And 600,000 of them. What happened to them? What was it they heard? And what was it that they did not believe? The land of Canaan. God will give you the land of Canaan. You will conquer your enemies. You will be able to. There are giants in the land. the, The 12 spies. Two of them were faithful. Caleb and Joshua. But the rest of the 10 came back with a bad report. And demoralized the rest of the soldiers demoralize them, and they all complain and say, we're not going to be able to do it. Those people are too big, and their cities are tall. They're fortified. They're, wep- they're weapons. We can't do it. We won't be able to do it, even though God had said again and again, through Moses, you will be able to do it. And did not you not see what I just did to Egypt? Did, did you not see all these miracles I performed in Egypt? I just performed a great one at the Red Sea, and now you're saying you're not going to be able to conquer the Canaanites? What's wrong with you people? You heard and you saw everything. Why don't you believe it? And of all of the 600,000, these people who heard, only Joshua and Caleb remained. Only Joshua and Caleb of the 600,000 men of war. Because God had said in Numbers 14, this whole generation of soldiers is going to die In the wilderness, these 40 years, for every day that you went out to spy the land of Canaan, 40 days, you will have a year for each day and you will die in this wilderness over a span of 40 years. And you were afraid that your own children and families would be prey to the Canaanites, but they're the ones in 40 years from now who will inherit that land that you despise because you did not trust me, you did not obey me, you did not desire to please me. So the 600,000 over a period of time died, over 40 years. But 10 of them died immediately because God sent out a plague against the 10 spies who demoralized all the rest. This is the way they were, even though they heard the word of God. Now, twice it tells us in our passage, verses 16 and 17, that they provoked him and he was angry. God was provoked and angered by all this. We do know, as it says in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, that the Lord, the Lord God is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who shows loving kindness to thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. No one can accuse God of having irrational anger, of being quick to anger, of not understanding and and sympathizing with the people, not loving and caring for the people. No one can ever impugn God and accuse God of anything like that because he says of himself that he is slow to anger. He says of himself that he is compassionate and gracious. He says this of himself. He had given them plenty of opportunities to believe, to hear the word of God, to see his miracles, and then to believe and obey it. No one can accuse God of being unjustly provoked by their rebellion, by the people's rebellion. That means that this is a righteous indignation, that this is a righteous anger, that he was righteously provoked. They did something that is inexcusable. And when I say something, I'm wrapping all of their many sins in one statement. They did this thing that deserved provocation, that deserved a righteous retribution, that deserved a punishment that they absolutely deserved for their disobedience. They, they had no grounds, absolutely no grounds to say, this is unfair, God. You can't punish us because we didn't know, you didn't give us time, so on and so forth. Nothing like that. God was absolutely righteous and just. That's why the remainder of Exodus 34, 6, and 7 says, Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. When the guilty, who are unrepentant and guilty, do not forsake their sin, they are unrepentant then God will inflict his punishment upon them. And even to the third and fourth generations, or as it says in the Ten Commandments, to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, it will go on and on and on to the children and to the grandchildren because there is no repentance. This kind of affliction, this kind of punishment continues when it does not uh, get repented of. It must be repented of then we can escape the wrath of God. Then we can escape any kind of fury and penalty that he might inflict upon us. Only then. We have to repent of sin. It says in uh, Luke 24, 46-47, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. How are we to obtain forgiveness so that the wrath of God is turned away from us? How are we to be reconciled to Him so that there is no more misery, there is no more doom and destruction that awaits us? How are we going to escape all of this? How are we going to be delivered? Only by repentance. The door of salvation is hinged upon repentance. The door of salvation has as its hinge salvation. There can be no salvation and forgiveness unless repentance is there. That's why Jesus preached it. And Jesus said, this is what everybody should preach. That's why it says also in Acts 20, 21, that there should be repentance toward God, both to Jews and Greeks. Repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not just Jews who need to repent. And it's not just Gentiles who need to repent. We all need to repent. And we all need to believe. Turn away from our sins. And believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead to give us life. This is what we need. To avert the wrath of God. To avoid the wrath of God. We need to repent. But the wilderness generation refused. So we might ask, why would they refuse? After all that was displayed before their very eyes, why would they refuse? Because they had their eyes on earthly things. Because they had their eyes on the here and now. They did not see the intangible, the invisible. They did not see the life to come. They were only looking at this life, the pleasures, the conveniences, all of the the, uh, entrapments of this life was on their mind. They could care less about the life to come. That's the problem. We know that they were told about the life to come because of chapter 4. He continues to discuss that generation in chapter 4 and he says the following. In chapter 4, verse 2. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Also verse 6, chapter 4, verse 6, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. Both in verses 2 and 6, the apostle tells us that they had good news, or the gospel preached to them, just as we have the good news the gospel preached to us. The same gospel that we believe is the same gospel that Moses preached to them. But they did not want to believe that gospel because they did not want to admit their sins. They did not want to acknowledge that they could not enter into heaven uh, uh, with their own righteousness, their own good works. They did not want to reject that. They thought that they were fine and good by themselves, in and of themselves. They thought they did not need to believe in the death of Christ in order to pay for their sins. That's ridiculous. That's stupid, they thought. Who would want to believe that? I'm fine. I'm just fine as I am. So I don't need to be forgiven in that way, and I don't need to live for the life to come, because we're all going to get there anyways. It's okay. Christ is not the only way. We're all going to make it there. We'll all reach heaven. So it's not a big deal. The big deal is now. And the big deal now is, I would rather live in Egypt and eat the onions, the leeks, and the garlic of Egypt and the fish over there. I I don't want to be in this wilderness, and I don't want to risk my life going into the land of Canaan. I don't want any of these afflictions. I want to go back where it was comfortable and familiar, and where it was luxurious. Luxurious compared to the wilderness, at least. That's the problem of the people. This is why they refused to see because they were so blinded and so intoxicated by their love of this world that they could not see the world to come. Furthermore, verses 18 and 19. Verses 18 and 19. And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Firstly, let's note in verse 18, to whom did he swear? To whom did he swear? God swore. When it says God swore, it means he took an oath. It doesn't mean he used profanity or he took the Lord's name in vain or the way that we use the word swear in English today. It did not mean that. It does not mean that. He swore an oath. That's what it means. He swore an oath And he was not going to ever renege on that oath that he swore. That is an amazing statement. We know that the promises of God come that way. I swear by myself, like he says in chapter 6, Hebrews 6, to Abraham. He swore by himself, because he could not swear by anyone greater. He swore by himself that he would give Abraham sea, like the stars of heaven and like the sand of the seashore. And that the promised seed among them would be the savior of all the nations. He gave that promise and he swore. That means it's fixed, it's certain, it's not temporary, he's not going to violate anything. An inviolable oath he swore to Abraham. That's on the positive side. But on the negative side, who is it that receives an oath from God for disobedience? It is here, these people, for disobedience and for unbelief. That shows that once God had announced by an oath that these people are hopeless, that these people will not believe, how many times will you not believe, he said? How many times will you not believe in me? Though I showed them these ten uh, signs, ten signs in the land of Egypt, though I showed them all this, They tested me all this while. How many times? Now I swear. Now I make an oath, God says. They will not enter the land of Canaan. They will never see it. They will die in this wilderness. That's amazing to think that God would announce that there is no hope for those people who are stubborn in their rebellion. Those people who are incorrigible in their uh, rebellion. No salvation whatsoever. You're going to experience death in this wilderness. That's it. No salvation. Now let's couple both this wrath of God and the oath of God and what he says and what he threatens regarding disobedience within the letter to the Hebrews. Within the letter to the Hebrews, notice, Chapter 10, in verse 26, 10 26. for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain, terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He says it's a certain Terrifying expectation of judgment. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There's no way to reconcile this now. It's done. And in fact, my vengeance and judgment will be inflicted. And it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This living God is one who has the fury of a fire, verse 27, which will consume the adversaries. Furthermore, within Hebrews... He continues in chapter 12, Hebrews 12, verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that may be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness, and gloom, and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word should be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God and the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Mind you now, he compares it, as he did before in chapter 10, Moses and Jesus, right? In chapter 10, he said Jesus is more severe than Moses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled on the foot the Son of God and has regarded unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Is he doing the same here? Is he going to tell us that it is worse since we have come to mount zion so forth we have come to jesus the mediator of a better covenant is it worse for us now than in the time of moses in the time of moses if an animal just touched the mountain it was supposed to be stoned to death and the people were not even supposed to approach the mountain where god was where the thunder and lightning and the earthquake and everything else was they weren't supposed to and it says here moses said i am full of fear and trembling moses the man of god was full of Uh, this fear and trembling. Is it easier for us now with Jesus or not? Let's continue. Hebrews 12, 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if those did not escape when they refused him him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is... A consuming fire. What's the answer? The answer is that our God is a consuming fire, and if we reject the heavenly realities, the heavenly truth, eternal salvation, there's no escape. If they did not escape when Moses warned them, how shall we escape when the Lord himself delivers the message personally, and we have it written for us? We cannot escape the eternal salvation of the Bible. Lastly, on Jesus as a person, Jesus as a person, today we have a misconception about Christ. We think that Christ is just our buddy. He's a pal, he's a chum, you know, we'd like to put our arms around him, like to say high five uh, and everything with him. That's the way we treat him. And maybe even like a Santa Claus, like a clown, like a, a big daddy in the sky. Something like that, who's got a a bag full of candy to distribute whenever we want. But notice what it says in Revelation 6 about this Jesus. Revelation 6.16. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able... To stand, Who is able to stand the great day of their wrath, the wrath of the Father and the wrath of the Son, here called the wrath of the Lamb? The Lamb of God is not a cute and cuddly little sheep. The wrath of the Lamb is one of judgment, of punishment against sinners who refuse repentance. Furthermore, Revelation 19 says, Revelation 19.15, describing the return of Christ. When he returns, what will he do in his second coming? Revelation 19.15 says, And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. The fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Jesus treads that wrath. Jesus is the one who executes this fierce wrath of God. He does not do so reluctantly. He does it enthusiastically because he knows what is right and true. Therefore, when we consider that God swore that there was no turning back for them, the punishment of God would come upon them, he was talking about something that was inviolable that was permanent, and that would be eternal. Eternal. Let us not think that just because they died in the wilderness, God's only threat to them was a physical threat. It actually had an eternal implication. It was a physical illustration of an eternal truth. That's what their death in the wilderness signified. Jude verse 7 says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them Since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. When Sodom and Gomorrah were miraculously destroyed physically, Jude says, they are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. It had to do with eternal damnation, eternal destruction. Then lastly, let's see, in verses 18 and 19, we see that the scripture compares disobedience to unbelief. It says that God swore that they should not enter his rest, that is, the land of Canaan as a symbol of heaven. It was to those who were disobedient, and he says they were not able to enter because of unbelief. He puts these two together, disobedience and unbelief. Let's see also in chapter 4, verse 2, where he emphasizes belief and unbelief and disobedience and obedience. Chapter 4, verse 2. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. By faith. Faith as a synonym for belief. For Verse 3 says... For we, ha, for we who have believed enter that rest. Just as he has said, As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Then we see in verse 6, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them fail to enter because of disobedience. Further in verse 11, Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. And verse 12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Where does faith originate or unbelief originate in the heart? Here, faith and obedience or unbelief and disobedience go hand in hand. We see this very clearly in our passage. Why is it that it goes hand in hand? What is happening? What's happening? We know that it goes hand in hand in certain positive examples, such as Hebrews 11. Does it not say in Hebrews 11, by faith, Enoch, by faith, Noah, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Isaac, by faith, Jacob, Joseph, Moses? It goes on like that, does it not? And what is it that they did by faith in the positive sense. What did they do? They obeyed. They had faith in what God said, and because they had faith in what he said, they obeyed what he said. That's what it says in verse 8, Hebrews 11:8. By faith, when Abraham received the promise, he obeyed by leaving his native land and going to the land of Canaan. He obeyed. If we have true faith... We will obey. And this true faith begins at conversion. It begins at the moment that we truly understand and believe the gospel. That's when the true faith and obedience begin. Why so? Jesus said in Mark 1.15, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. When he said repent and believe, those are commands. They are imperatives. They're commandments. If he says repent, then repent. If he says stand up, then stand up. If he says sit down, sit down. Those are commands or imperatives. When the gospel is preached and we preach, repent. and We say believe. Then you're supposed to obey that. That's why these two are inescapably mixed together. These two are two sides of a coin. If you believe, then you will obey. If you don't obey, then you don't believe. They go together. Just like repentance and faith go together, two sides of a coin, the same analogy could be said of belief and obedience. They go together, inescapably together. That's why John said in John 3:36, He who believes in the Son shall have eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. They go together. Let's make them go together for us. Let's be those who hear the word and obey it. Let's be those who delight in the promises of God and who do not turn away from anything God says, thereby receiving the wrath of God. May we not be those who desire the wrath of God, but the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. May we be those who believe in God in that way. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.